Good morning, everybody. Uh, we've been working through Hebrews for the past two years. We're back in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 1 to 6, and then from 20, verse 23 through to 12, verse 2. I just... Good morning, church family. I'm Nikki Walter. Um, as Baby mentioned, I'm a member of, a very proud member of the Bryanston Life Group. Um, in addition to being a family um, and meeting weekly to go through God's Word and encourage one another, we clearly convert people into dog lovers. Um, when Baby joined our group, she was petrified of dogs, stayed at least three meters from any one of them, and now they're getting a mention in the morning's church prayer. So um, if any of you are still looking for a church home and live in the area, we'd love you to join us. Uh, this morning's uh, reading, as Royden mentioned, comes from Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 6, and then we jump to verses 23 into chapter 12, verse 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to, to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect." Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Won't you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, recognize that faith is a gift, and it's yours to give in the power of your Spirit, the Spirit of your Son. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith here this morning, that we would be reformed into a people of faith, that we might go out into the world full of courage and hope, that the courage and hope that faith brings and live for you in the days and weeks that lie ahead. So please meet with us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, for me it's been a difficult couple of weeks. Sometimes I feel like my heart is actually powered by ESCOM. Whenever I get a notification from ESCOM to push, my heart powers down. My courage fails me for the next two and a half hours. When the lights go out, I sink into something of a spiritual darkness. I suspect it isn't just me. There does seem to be a general heaviness around. The cold, the load shedding, the ugly politics, the ugly economics, the ugly petrol price, the lack of leadership, the suspicion, the nagging suspicion that in six months' time we're going to witness yet another round of friends and family members and colleagues and young people from all walks of life heading off for greener pastures. Add to that the deep personal struggles that I know many of you are facing. Add to that the suffering of the poor at a time like this. And it paints a pretty grim picture, doesn't it? I am so grateful to God for his providence that this particular passage comes to us at this particular time. Definitely not by any orchestration on my part. Sermon roster was planned ages ago, planned by me ages ago, planned by God well before that, clearly. And so I'm so grateful that this passage, this word from God comes to us at this time. Hopefully by the end of the sermon, you will join me in thanksgiving. As I said earlier, for two years, ten chapters, we've been working through the letter to the Hebrews. And this has been the message so far. Let me refresh you. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is a fuller revelation of God, better than the prophet's. He's a better Adam. He offers a better rest than Joshua. He's a son, not a servant like Moses. He's the last high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's a better mediator of a better covenant with better access to a better sanctuary. Jesus is better in every possible way. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the goodness of God in Jesus Christ? What does the writer to the Hebrews want from his church? Because that's the turn the letter takes at this point. At this point, the letter turns to consider what a response 
to the goodness of God in Jesus Christ might look like. What, what does the writer want for his church? What does God want for us and from us? The writer has suggested responses, a number of responses, the whole way through the letter. Let me give you a few. Pay much, a close, pay much closer attention to what you've heard so that you don't drift away. 2 verse 1. See to it that you don't have an unbelieving heart. 3 verse 12. Encourage one another daily. 3.13. Hold fast to your confession. 4.14. Leave elementary doctrines behind. 6 verse 1. And so on and so on. There have been calls to a response littered throughout the letter. But if there is one thing, if there's one thing the writer wants to stress as the heart of a response to the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, if there's one word that captures the essence and foundation of the right response to the glory of God revealed in the all-surpassing supremacy of Christ, that one thing, that one word, is faith. Faith. One small word with almost two chapters devoted to it. One small word that makes all the difference. Faith. The writer has so much to say about faith in chapter 10, 11, 12. But let me just point out, for the sake of time, let me just point out seven. Seven attributes of our response called faith. Seven things that come to us by faith. Conviction, covenant, action, pain, salvation, hope, and direction. Some of you take notes. I'll give them to you again. Conviction, covenant, action, pain, hope, and direction. Number one, conviction. The writer to the Hebrews, thankfully, he tells us exactly what he means by the word faith. So we're not left to guess. He's very explicit. Look at verse 1. 11 verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we're going to start with the last part of that, that word conviction. And the word translated conviction has the sense of tried and tested. It has the sense of settled proof or evidence. In other words, faith is holding to a position on things unseen, but on the basis of the evidence. The position is tried and tested. The position is held to be true on the basis of the evidence. Now, if you stop and think about it, that's very different to how the world sees faith, isn't it? This is how evolutionary atheist Richard Dawkins defines faith. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is, is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Such an interesting definition because it's the exact opposite of the Bible's definition of faith. The Bible insists on evidence. Biblical faith insists on evidence. It's why the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to so many people. Biblical faith insists on evidence. For example, 
Look at verse 3, Hebrews 11 verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen, the evidence, was not made out of things that are visible. Now bear in mind, whether you are an evolutionary atheist or a disciple of Jesus Christ, no one was there to witness the beginning of the world. In that sense, we are all of us the evolutionary atheist or the disciple of Jesus Christ, working off the biblical definition of faith. We have a conviction about things unseen. The evidence is the world around us. So let me ask you, when you listen to Handel's Messiah or gaze at the Mona Lisa, or ponder Einstein's general theory of relativity, or read deep into Macbeth, or marvel at the Burj Khalifa, or shudder at Auschwitz, or celebrate the long walk to freedom. Is it more plausible that life and love, in all of its drama and color, in all of its triumph and tragedy, in all of its good and evil, is it more plausible that that came from a God A God of beauty, a God who thinks, who feels, who speaks, a God who decides right from wrong, a God who cares about justice and injustice, a God who loves. Or is it more plausible that it all came from nothing and ultimately is nothing? This is how Bill Bryson describes the beginning from his own evolutionary convictions. It is natural but wrong to visualize the singularity, that's just a fancy way of talking about the beginning, as a kind of pregnant dot hanging in a dark, boundless void. But there is no space, no darkness. The singularity has no around around it. There is no space for it to occupy, no place for it to be. We can't even ask how long it has been there, whether it has just lately popped into being like a good idea, or whether it has been there forever, quietly awaiting the right moment. Time doesn't exist. There is no past for it to emerge from. And so, from nothing, our universe begins. Either human beings with their spectacular capacity for love and hatred, beauty and chaos, embedded in a gloriously spectacular theater called the universe, with the ability to marvel at that universe, either that came from nothing and is nothing, or it came from the God who himself speaks and acts and loves. But the point is this, wherever you stand, whatever position you stand in, the point is this, you are standing in a position of faith. Either one of those two convictions calls you to decide about things unseen on the basis of the evidence. The writer to the Hebrews adds this, 11 verse 6. Without faith, 
It is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Conviction in the invisible God on the basis of the evidence is essential to pleasing him. Now that makes common sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's just, it just makes sense. If your wife is overseas, but because you can't see her, you deny her existence, you treat her as though she never existed, she might not be too chuffed either. It doesn't matter how clean you keep the kitchen. Okay? She's not going to be too chuffed. Please don't try this at home. It's just an illustration. <laughs> but the same thing is true of God. If, despite all the evidence, you deny his existence and refuse to relate to him, well, it's no surprise then, whatever you do, no matter how good it is, whatever you do, it's not going to please him. Faith is the conviction of things unseen, and it is essential to pleasing God. Number two, covenant. In the Old Testament, any mention of faith, any mention of faith is a reference to a covenant relationship. Faith in the setting of the Old Testament was about integrity of that relationship. Faith would describe thought, word, or deeds that either aligns or doesn't align with the terms of that covenant relationship. So in that sense, faith goes beyond conviction. It doesn't leave conviction behind. But faith goes beyond conviction into the domain of relationship. Again, I think this makes perfect sense. Just think about it with me. I have certain convictions about Elon Musk on the basis of the evidence, but we have absolutely no relationship whatsoever. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, doesn't he know who I am? <laughs> I have convictions, but there's no relationship. Convictions do not imply relationship. Now, faith implies relationship. It goes beyond conviction. It doesn't leave conviction behind. But it also implies relationship. Israel was bound by covenant relationship to their God. The relationship depended on mutual faithfulness, like a marriage covenant. That's what the Old Testament meant by faith. Now, of course, the writer to the Hebrews is thoroughly immersed in the Old Testament, every single character mentioned by name in chapter 11 is from the Old Testament. So in that sense, whenever faith is mentioned in Hebrews, it must have this element of covenant relationship, at least in the background. It's not merely a set of convictions. Are you, are you with me? By faith, those mentioned by name in chapter 11, by faith, they were faithful to the covenant. They were able, by faith, they were able to honor the relationship with their God. We're going to say more about that a little bit later. Number three, action. Action. Godly action comes to us by faith. Let's flip it around. Faith will lead to godly action. In other words, faith works. Faith works. Now that will immediately cause tension for some of you. 
because you've been very well schooled in the truth that justification comes not by works, but by faith alone. That's a precious truth. It's one we must defend. It's one we must cling to. But we mustn't misunderstand it. A justification that comes by faith does not exclude works coming by the same faith. Faith will move you to action. In the words of James, another part of the New Testament, living faith will produce works. In the words of Paul, now bear in mind people often want to pit Paul and James against each other, but they are entirely consistent because it's the one word of God. In the words of Paul to the Thessalonians, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. That's the message of James. And it's the message of the writer to the Hebrews. It's a point he makes over and over and over again. Of course, he's already made the point that your work apart from faith counts for nothing. You can be busy with all sorts of good things, but if they are done apart from faith, if you are doing a whole host of good things while denying the existence of God in your life, those good things count for nothing. They will not please God. The work that comes by faith is a different story entirely. And it's a story our writer is so keen to tell. Chapter 11 is basically an extended catalog of the work produced by faith in the lives of God's people. He summarizes the point like this. Chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Faith works. And by faith, God's people do the most extraordinary things. I'll share with you, I have a favorite on that list. Here's my favorite. By faith, they were made strong out of weakness. It's my favorite because in the economy of God, not many of us are going to stop the mouth of a lion or put a foreign army to flight. But all of us, all of us are weak. And God can display his strength through our weakness by faith. The tiniest acts of kindness Obedience, purity, love, self-sacrifice, the smallest steps of faith do not go unnoticed. They get a mention in the catalog of faith. Under the banner, they were made strong out of weakness by faith. Those acts, those tiniest acts of faith may be invisible, entirely invisible to the world, but they are not unseen by God himself. By faith, God works extraordinary things in our lives. But by the same faith, he works seemingly very ordinary things. 
And if they are by faith, both are pleasing to him. Leads us nicely into the next thing that comes by faith. Number four, pain. Because faith implies a covenant relationship, embedded within faith are the ideas of trust, loyalty, allegiance. Faith is essentially pledging allegiance to the king. But pledging allegiance to one king, if we know anything about politics, pledging allegiance to one king immediately puts you at odds with all the other kings. You are picking sides in a battle. You're either for or you're against. It's one or the other. And if you are for this one, you're against all the others. That comes at a cost. Jesus encourages his disciples to count that cost before they sign up. And when we read Hebrews 10 and 11, we can see why. Listen to the writer's description of faith. Flip back to chapter 10. Listen to this. Chapter 10, verse 32. Here's a picture of faith. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Abel died for his faith, 11 verse 4. Moses, 11 verse 24, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And finally, 11 verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. A picture of the life of faith. It's a very different picture, isn't it? It's a very different picture from the kind of faith that is peddled in so many of our churches common picture of faith in our wider church culture is the power of positive thinking or special anointing from above that will get you your best life now. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. Your best life now? But the faith that's peddled out there is your best life now. Enough faith can help you achieve your dreams, your ambitions, however it is you define success. Enough faith can bring you comfort and leisure. Enough faith means the end of debt. Enough faith can bring back the lost lover, end of illness, end of struggle in general, beginning of the designer life. The key is faith. Whatever that is, the writer to the Hebrews would not recognize it as faith. 
Faith as allegiance to an unpopular king will often bring hardship. It can bring hard struggle with sufferings, public reproach, affliction, prison, the plundering of your property, mistreatment, torture, mockery, destitution, homelessness, even death. It has in the past for God's people. It could again. No servant is above her master. So please, do not believe the lie. Don't buy the ticket to the funfair marked faith. Because what these snake oil salesmen are flogging is actually the reverse of faith. Do you see that? It's the reverse of faith. They are asking you to give up being mistreated with the people of God in exchange for the fleeting pleasures of sin. They are asking you to believe that the treasures of Egypt are worth more than the reproach of Christ. It's faith in reverse. They are asking you to trade the eternal weight of glory with its light and momentary afflictions for candy floss. Don't make that trade. True faith, true allegiance to Christ does come with a cost. It does. But thanks be to God, it also comes with the resources to bear that cost. He doesn't leave us alone. Did you notice? Even though the church had hard struggle with sufferings, they endured. When their friends were in prison, they had compassion. When their property was being plundered, it didn't rob them of their joy. It was by faith that Moses could choose Christ and his people. It was by faith that God's people of old could face even mockery, chains, stoning, poverty, death. Even though Abel died, he still speaks by faith. By faith, we will suffer. By faith, the same faith, we can endure. So what are the resources that come by faith to help us endure? What, are the, what specifically are those resources? Well, near the top of that list must be the assurance of salvation. That's number five. Salvation. I'm going to let you in on another one of my favorites from the Catalog of Faith. Look at verse 31. Another one of my favorites. Verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. I love this verse because it's such a stark reminder to us that the salvation that comes by faith alone is not for the righteous. It is not for the righteous. Rahab is a pagan prostitute. She fails every test of organized religion. She fails the ethnic test. She is born into an unclean people group, an unclean culture. She fails the moral test. She exchanges sexual favors for money. She fails every test. 
But just notice how she's evaluated in the verse. She is placed right alongside on the same platform with all the other upstanding citizens of Jericho. Shoulder to shoulder with people, some of whom were no doubt living clean, ordinary lives, doing ordinary good things, but not doing them by faith in the one true living God. She is shoulder to shoulder with all the other disobedient who will perish. Only she is saved. Her salvation came by faith. Thank God for Rahab. I love her. I long to meet her one day. Because once again, we can identify, can't we? You can read chapter 11 and and at one level be totally discouraged because you just don't see yourself anywhere. You're just not a hero of the faith. You're sinking deeper and deeper until you get to verse 31. Rahab the prostitute, who simply by her allegiance to the king of Israel rather than the king of Canaan, who by that allegiance and nothing else was gifted salvation. And her physical salvation is a picture of our eternal salvation. It's a salvation for those who flee to King Jesus with nothing but their desperation. Even more than that, this verse about a prostitute who is commended for her faith, it invites us to do a little digging into the rest of the chapter. And what do we find? We find that she's not alone. Noah, the drunkard. Abraham, the coward. Isaac, the passive. Jacob, the con artist. Joseph, the braggart. Moses, the faithless. Gideon, the idolater. Samson, the fool. David, take your pick. (laughs) By faith, God worked great things through the people of God. Especially salvation itself. But never, not in a single instance, because the people were worthy. Not in one instance. It all came as a free gift of His grace. Doesn't that give you hope? And hope is the gift that the writer highlights above all else in this chapter. Hope. Of all the things that came by faith, hope is the thing he wants to leave his church with. Hope is the thing God wants to leave us with this morning. Back to our definition of faith, 11 verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance of things hoped for. He unpacks this definition in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. 
Faith involves trusting God for the future. Faith anticipates with eager expectation the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Faith exercised in this forward-looking way is what we call hope. It is hope that empowers the heroes of the faith to live as exiles and strangers in the here and now. It is hope and a promise of a better country, a heavenly country, a homecoming that allows them, empowers them, equips them to endure struggle with suffering on the journey. By faith, God's people are gifted this hopeful capacity to look forward to the final fulfillment of all of his promises. That has always been true of God's people. And it's true of us today. Faith, and with it hope, will mean that you do not make your home here. In fact, you will always feel a restlessness. You will never feel fully at home here. And so that restlessness that we feel, we should feel. We should expect to feel. You know there are better things to come because you know God. You know his character. You know his promises. You know his purposes. And knowing him will empower you to decline the fleeting pleasures of sin because no thank you very much I'm just passing through I'm en route to better things in a heavy season like the one we're going through right now I find this such a precious truth such a precious truth because when I come to my senses when I'm actually in my right mind in those lucid moments that are all too rare When I come to my senses, I remember that this isn't my home. I'm a citizen of another country. I'm just passing through. I'm just here for a while. And when God gives me those moments by the prompting of his spirit, by the work of his spirit, my courage actually begins to return. The heaviness lifts. When I lift my eyes and see things as they truly are, the heaviness begins to lift. More than that, I remember this precious calling, this wonderful calling that's on all of us for the journey. We are ambassadors. While we're here, while we're passing through, for the briefest of moments that is our lives, we are ambassadors for our home country. And so what do we do? We do what any decent, half-decent ambassador does. We, we learn the local language. We befriend the people. We love them. We do everything in our power to take, us, take them with us on the journey, but we are not putting down roots. We're not embracing the values. When we go home, we are going to take as many with us as possible, and we'll do everything in our power to take as many with us as possible. But we're not planning to stay. I find that so liberating. The heaviness lifts. When I cling to that truth, I can I feel like like once again I can face the struggle 
because it's only for a while. I have important work to do. And I'm headed for better things. Sadly, it has become popular, even in the church, to say that this kind of focus on heaven, on home, makes Christians useless and irrelevant to the world around them. Now, you've heard the thing. Christians are too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. I totally understand the impulse. I have great sympathy for the impulse. I understand where it's coming from, but it's completely wrong-headed. In fact, the opposite is true. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He makes his argument on the basis of evidence. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. They left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. The testimony of Hebrews 10 and 11 is that the heroes of the faith did extraordinary things on earth precisely because they were on their way to heaven. They were headed for home. By faith, the same can be true of us. Because you are just an exile en route to a better country. In this life, you are free to forego all things, to risk all things, to endure, to suffer and endure all things for the sake of him in whom you put your faith. And that leads us to the final thing that is ours by faith. Number seven, direction. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, our faith has a direction. It has an orientation. It looks to Jesus. That phrase, by faith, those two little words, by faith, it occurs 19 times in chapter 11, 19 times. In the Greek, it's a single word, right? Two English words, one word in the Greek, in what is called the instrumental dative case. Who cares? The only reason I'm telling you that is for the word instrumental. Because that word actually has something to say about the nature of faith. Faith is instrumental. It doesn't do anything in and of itself. It is the instrument by faith. Do you hear the instrument, the instrument nature of faith there? By faith. It's an instrument. It's the means. It's the go-between. It's nothing more than the beggar's bowl by which God's grace comes to us. That grace can do spectacular things in our lives. But the faith itself 
is just the means. The means by which the grace comes to us. To put it another way, faith is nothing more than the eye by which you behold Jesus. Tragically, all too often, we make faith about looking within. If I just had enough faith, if only I believed. I mean, that stuff is everywhere, isn't it, in our culture? It's not surprising it's made its way into the church. But it isn't faith. It's a cheap knockoff at best. It's nothing more than the power of positive thinking. You can achieve anything. Just believe. Sound familiar? But believe in what? Believe in who? Well, if faith is about my ambitions, my agenda, my faith, my capacity to believe, then what you're really saying is, believe in yourself. Faith, whatever it is, is inside you. It's some sort of resource that you unlock some power that you unlock with, within you, and faith is the key. That isn't biblical faith. That's Disney. Not so the writer to the Hebrews. Look to Jesus, right? The essence of faith. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Faith is radically objective. Faith turns away from itself and turns to Jesus, the faithful one. Because it's in him and only in him that all the other attributes of faith that we've been talking about this morning come together. He is perfect in conviction. He is perfect in action. And he is perfect in the integrity that hold conviction and action together. He fulfills the covenant from both sides. He makes good on God's side of the covenant. He makes good on ours. He endured all manner of pain for the joy set before him. He did it for our salvation. He is our only hope. In that sense, Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end the author and the perfecter, the alpha and the omega of our faith. And then, all the blessings of that faith come to us through his spirit, the spirit of Christ. You can have conviction because he rose from the dead, because the tomb is empty, because the church exists. You can have conviction on the basis of the evidence. You are moved by his love and his grace into the kind of zealous action that nothing else can really motivate for any length of time. You grow in your faithfulness to God because of the covenant written in his blood. You can endure all manner of pain because you know that he has suffered with you and he has suffered for you. His suffering... His blood is your salvation. You can hope in full assurance, with deepest confidence, because your king has said that he will come back. And he is faithful 
and true to his word. When all is said and done, faith is not about you. It's about him. The right response to the all-surpassing supremacy of Jesus Christ is faith in him. And if we stop to think about it, it's the only response. Let's ask God to make it our response. Let's pray. Our Father, we plead with you this morning that by your Spirit, you will make us into a people of faith. Help us to fix our gaze on the glory of Jesus Christ, to be single-minded in our devotion, our allegiance, our trust, our focus on him. We know, Lord, that if you do this work in us, it will transform us into a people of deepest conviction, of covenant faithfulness, of zealous action, of patient endurance, and of steadfast saving hope. Looking to him will make us who you want us to be. Father, please, bring all of this to pass by faith in Christ. Amen.